Amen. Well, good morning, Life Church. I'm glad that you're with us on our live stream this morning or whatever time of day it is that you're watching this, wherever it is that you're watching this. And in whatever place that is, at whatever time that is, I pray that uh, right now you'll grab a Bible um, and that you'll turn in that Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, um, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This morning, uh, we're launching into a new teaching series through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a series that will take us all the way until Labor Day, and so we're going to devote the next three months or so uh, to this relatively obscure, somewhat um, unknown, and often challenging book of the Old Testament. And of course, when we begin something like that, the first question that we ask is, why are we doing this? Why are we going to spend these months together in the book of Ecclesiastes? I'll answer that question in a moment. In 1993, uh, the actor Bill Murray starred as the main character, Phil Connors, in the movie Groundhog Day. And the simple, if not absurd, premise of the movie Groundhog Day is the fact that every day in this character's life is February 2nd. Every day is Groundhog Day. Every day, no matter what happens in the day, and no matter how it ends, The next day, Phil Connors wakes up, and he is still in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, celebrating Groundhog Day. And it seems to me that one of the questions the movie kind of puts forward, sets before us as we watch it, is the question of how does one find meaning in life when nothing ever changes? And so nothing in Phil Connors' life changes. No matter how he fills his time, how he fills his day, His day ends the same way every single day. And in that experience, Phil begins to search for meaning. He searches for meaning in the accumulation of lots of and extravagant stuff. He searches for meaning in the pursuit of pleasure. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when Phil is surrounded in this diner, surrounded by like a whole table full of food, and he's drinking coffee directly from the pot of coffee because it's this picture of how absurd it is to try to just fill your life with as much pleasure as you can possibly fill it with, making the statement that even if you do that, you won't find meaning. And so in his whole life in this movie, Phil's searching for meaning. He's searching for, for who he is. He tries to fill his life with knowledge. He tries to fill his life with possessions. He pursues women. He tries to fill his life with virtue. And still at the end of every day, He goes to bed and then wakes up again the next day, and nothing is different. Nothing has changed. Now, I know quite a few people who opined that life in quarantine seemed a lot like the movie Groundhog Day. It seemed like nothing ever changed in the season when we were confined to our homes and asked to not really interact with many people outside of our immediate families. I know a lot of people who felt like every single day seemed like every day before it, and a lot of people who just completely lost track of what day of the week it was and then realized that it didn't even matter to them necessarily what day of the week it was because Tuesday was the same as Wednesday, which was the same as Thursday, which was the same as Friday. And, and so life in quarantine, it really felt a lot like the absurd premise of the movie Groundhog Day, but I would submit to you today that even life outside of quarantine is really a lot more like the movie Groundhog Day than we might admit. In the end, 
Most of us drive to the same few places that we always go. Most of us visit the same few people that we always visit. Most of us spend our money on the same few things that we always spend our money on. We eat at the same few restaurants and order the same few things from those same few restaurants every time we go. And as we live our lives, it doesn't seem that things change very much at all. And even on a deeper spiritual or or philosophical level, many of us recognize that we struggle with the same struggles today that we struggled with a year ago today or 10 years ago today. And as we look at the world around us, the world around us struggles with the same things that it's been struggling with for decades or millennia even. The same problems are here. Nothing ever seems to change. And so I think we're right to acknowledge the fact that the question that haunted Phil Connors, it haunts us too. How do we find meaning in life when nothing ever really seems to change? That's the question that the book of Ecclesiastes has a poignant and powerful answer to. Now, I said earlier, it's an obscure book of the Bible. It's a book that many of us have never read. I realize that there are probably some people watching this live stream. When I asked you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, it was the first time you'd ever turned to Ecclesiastes. And there are many more of us, even if we've read Ecclesiastes, we're not really sure what to do with this book because it seems to be full of statements and sayings that are difficult to understand or comprehend or apply. And I'll admit it's off the beaten path for my life even. I've, I've pastored people like this for almost 20 years now, and this is the very first time I have ever stood before a group of people and opened my Bible to Ecclesiastes and pretended to have something compelling to say from this book. Right? It's a challenging book. But I believe firmly, deeply, that it's a book that we need right now. I believe that it's the right book for us right now, in an age of uncertainty and anxiety, in a season that's just marked by loss and by grief. I mean, every day, that's the front page of every newspaper right now, loss and grief, suffering and death. As you walk through an era of economic uncertainty, and even this weekend, as we've seen Images from places like Minneapolis that just rend our hearts when we're confronted by the pain and suffering that still exist in our land. And we need Ecclesiastes right now. Because just as Ecclesiastes teaches us how to find meaning when nothing ever changes, I think we'll also see as we walk through this book in the months ahead that this book teaches us how to find meaning when everything changes. And so I'm grateful that we can spend the time in it that we will over the weeks ahead. And I'm grateful for the next 30 minutes when we get to unpack Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 together. Let me read our passage for us this morning and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes 
and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Church, this is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we seek to understand it together. Heavenly Father, we ask here in this moment that you would use your word as an instrument by the power and person and work of your Holy Spirit to shape us and to form us in your image and to help us to understand the meaning that you have called us to live in light of. These are hard and heavy and difficult words, Lord. I know that I myself don't have the ability to help anyone understand them. And so we need you now. We need your spirit to open our eyes to the beauty of your truth and to soften our hearts to the significance of your word that we might understand and live in light of these words today. And so we need you, spirit, now to work. We pray that we will be open to that work as you come. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So in verse 1, uh, we need to understand something significant if we're going to understand how this book works at all. Verse 1 introduces us to the two voices that we will encounter as we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. Those two voices are, first, the narrator of the book, and he doesn't speak much, but he speaks in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and then he circles back around at the end in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. There the narrator speaks, but in this first verse, the narrator is introducing us to the second voice that we're going to hear in the book of Ecclesiastes. That is the book of the man the narrator calls the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem. Now, throughout her church history, perhaps you know, um, that preacher, that son of David, that king in Jerusalem, he has been identified as one of Israel's great kings, King Solomon. Solomon was renowned for his wisdom. He was a man of great riches and wealth, and certainly the preacher in this book seems to be a man of great wisdom and speaks as one who has accumulated in his life great wealth. And of course, Solomon was also the son of David and king in Jerusalem, and so it's certainly possible that Solomon is the preacher that we meet here in verse 1. However, I'll point out the fact that the narrator actually stops short of calling the preacher Solomon. He calls him a son of David, but that could mean any descendant of David. 
He calls him king in Jerusalem, but that could mean any king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so we're not entirely certain who this preacher is. But one thing is certain, I think. As we read this book, we'll see that the preacher here preaches to us with the wisdom of Solomon. Whether he is Solomon himself or someone later standing in Solomon's shoes, so to speak, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is certainly the wisdom of Solomon. And that's significant because when we think about Solomon's life, Solomon was a man who accumulated great wealth, who accomplished great works, who possessed great wisdom, but still in the end he found all of those things wanting when he searched for meaning in his own life. He had it all. Wealth, women, power, possessions, everything. Yet he found that having it all wasn't enough to find meaning in life. And so Ecclesiastes speaks to us with Solomon's wisdom in Solomon's voice almost to offer Solomon's life as a cautionary tale, as if to say that you can pursue everything under the sun, everything that this world has to offer us. But if Solomon found those things lacking, then surely we will find them lacking too. Verse 1 introduces us to the preacher. Verse 2, still the narrator speaking, I believe, he introduces us to the preacher's primary message. This is the theme of the book. He says in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You could hear just the deliberate repetition of that word vanity. By the way, it's worth noting that the last verse that the preacher speaks to us in the book, which would be chapter 12, verse 8, is identical to verse 2. That's why I'm so sure that this is, in fact, the theme of the book, because the book begins and ends with these ideas. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 30 30 times or more in this book, we're going to run into verses in which the preacher is suggesting to us that everything in life is vanity. What does he mean when he says that? Well, the Hebrew word that my Bible translates as vanity, and your English Bible, if you're not reading the ESV as I am, probably says something different there. But the Hebrew word is the word hevel. And literally translated, it means something like mist or vapor. And what we'll find as we walk through this book together, church, is that the preacher uses that word mist or vapor as this multi-layered metaphor for how fleeting and temporary and unsubstantial life on this earth really is. He says, life is like smoke that rises from a campfire. Our lives, they appear on the timeline of history for a moment, but then they're gone. He says that our life, it's like the the steam that comes from a teapot when it's ready to boil. Like that steam, our lives have little substance. They're fleeting, they are weightless. They're inconsequential, the preacher says. All is vanity. Everything is vapor. That's the theme of this book. This book is teaching us that there is no one and no thing in this life that is truly of substance. You know, we speak that way sometimes. We want to pay somebody a compliment. We might say that they're a man or a woman of substance 
when a new idea comes along and it seems to, to be a really significant idea, we'll talk about it as an idea of substance. But the preacher says no. The preacher says all is vanity, all is mist, all is vapor. There is nothing in this world that is of substance. Now I'll admit that those are jarring words. Those are words that we might not quickly agree with and I think it'll take us some weeks in this book before we, be, we begin to completely understand and embrace the preacher's perspective. But one thing that I hope we'll acknowledge today is that this preacher is in the theme of this book, challenging the very assumptions that we bring to life in this world. I mean, we assume, our default assumption is to assume that things in this world, life in this world, that they're substantial and stable. But Ecclesiastes begins with the assumption that they are not. We assume that the things of life are weighty, that they matter. And Ecclesiastes tells us that they're like vapor. We assume that our decisions and our legacies in life, that they are of great consequence. Well, Ecclesiastes tells us that they're like smoke rising to the night sky, only to vanish. We assume that our work, our relationships, our legacies, our lives, we assume that those are real things that are solid and stable. But the narrator's summary of the preacher's message tells us that all of those things are like mist that appears for just a moment and then vanishes. And I think we need to acknowledge that the truth is nothing in this life is stable. Nothing in this life is solid or firm or enduring. And frankly, I think that's one of the great lessons that the coronavirus is teaching each of us. I mean, how stable can our lives really truly be if an unseen microscopic organism has the power to bring an entire civilization to its knees overnight? How stable and significant can our lives really be if everything in our lives can be turned upside down by something that sounds like it's straight out of the plot of a science fiction novel? I mean, we want to believe that the things of earth are stable beneath our feet. But even our own experience teaches us what Ecclesiastes teaches us, that these things are not stable. But Ecclesiastes doesn't stop there. The preacher will tell us that nothing in this life is stable. But then, by the grace of God, he'll show us how to find meaning in a life that is mist, that is vapor, that is vanity. So verse 1, it introduces us to the preacher. Verse 2 summarizes for us the preacher's message. Now verses 3 to 11, the preacher launches into a poem. We're going to see that the preacher really likes poetry. He uses it a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes. But in this poem, in verses 3 to 11, he endeavors to persuade us that life under the sun is vain. And as we read through this poem, we'll notice that he he primarily asks us and then answers two separate questions. The first question is in verse 3. He asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, he's talking about our work, the work of our hands, our toil. 
But that's a word, that word gain, he, he borrows that from the world of business and accounting. And so he's putting these ideas together, our work and what gain that work is to us. And he's essentially asking the question, what's the bottom line from all of our work? After you put all the sweat in, after you labor and work and do all of the heavy lifting, after you build whatever it is that you've endeavored to build, after you accomplish whatever it is that you've endeavored to accomplish, what will you gain from all of that? Now, I should point out this is a rhetorical question. We know that because the preacher's gonna answer that question very decisively just in the next chapter. We'll read this passage next week, but he says in chapter two, verse 11, he says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So the preacher says of his own life, of his own work, all of my work gained nothing, because there's no toil that amounts to gain under the sun. Man works and works, and he gains nothing. What vanity. That's the preacher's point, and he illustrates that point in this poem. He uses four images in verses four through seven. Verse four, it's the image of passing generations. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. People passing along the timeline of history, that's like a treadmill that never stops, the preacher says. The class of 2020 gives way to the class of 2030, to the class of 2040, to the class of 2050. And there's always a new class coming along on that treadmill, and the old class is always passing off into the sunset. Today's graduates are the parents and then the grandparents of tomorrow's graduates. Nothing changes. Nothing is new under the sun. What vanity, the preacher says. Verse five, he says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and then hastens to the place where it rises. He's just pointing to the unaffected rhythm of the sun. No matter what happens under the sun, the sun, it just keeps rising and keeps setting and then keeps rising again. Nothing ever changes with the sun. What vanity, the preacher says. Verse six, he says the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. He's saying, just as predictable as the sun is, the wind is unpredictable. It goes around and around and around, and no matter what happens under the sun, nothing changes. What vanity. Verse seven, he says, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And he's speaking to just how insatiable the sea is, and life under the sun is. I mean, this preacher, he probably grew up in Palestine. He probably grew up watching the Jordan River flow every day into the Dead Sea. And I'm sure as he watched that, he observed the fact that the Jordan River never stopped flowing into the sea, yet the, flea, the sea was still always thirsty for the water that would come from the river. It was never full. And so that water, it never stopped flowing the sea was never satisfied. This is what is inevitable to those who look to their labor for their meaning. That's what the preacher is going on about here. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And his answer is nothing. 
because all is vanity. And then he begins to build towards the second question that he asks in this poem. In verse eight, he says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. My translation of that is that life is so vain that it leaves man speechless. He goes on, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, no matter how much Netflix you watch or how many podcasts you listen to, no matter how much content you consume, there will always be more to consume, and your eyes and your ears, they will never be satisfied because all of it is vanity. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. In other words, the more things change, the more they stay the same because there's just nothing new under the sun. And having said that, he gets to the second question that he asks in this poem. He says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Is there anything genuinely new under the sun, he asks. Once again, this is a rhetorical question, and he answers it for us right away. He goes on in verse 10, It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. No matter how much you toil, no matter how much you labor, there is nothing new under the sun. The more things appear to change, the more in reality they stay the same. Thus life vanity. Now, I'll admit, it's a pretty depressing start to the book, isn't it? I mean, some of you are sitting there right now, and you're thinking, Sharp, life is depressing enough as it is in 2020. Why are you going to add heap depression upon my existing depression for three months with this book? Do we really need to swallow this pill right now? I'm sure some of us are asking. But I think to, to answer that, it's important to pause and consider exactly how the book of Ecclesiastes teaches us what it intends to teach us. It's in the book of Jeremiah that um, the Lord, he likens the idolatry of his people to his people being thirsty and trying to dig a well that doesn't hold water. He says, my people, they, they, dig, they hew out cisterns that hold no water. They dig wells that will just never hold water. And it's not until his people are about to die from dehydration that they understand that they're digging in the wrong place, that they're looking to the wrong thing for water and for nourishment and for life. And it's only because they come to the end of themselves, Jeremiah says, that the people of God are able to turn and find true living water in the Lord himself. I think the preacher wants us to learn the same lesson the same way. He wants us to realize that life under the sun is vain and meaningless so that we learn to look for meaning in life above the sun. Right? That's what he's been talking about. We've heard that phrase a couple times. We heard it in verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We hear it again in verse nine. There is nothing new under the sun. That idea of life under the sun, we're gonna hear that a ton in the book of Ecclesiastes. And every time the preacher preaches to us about life under the sun, 
He's intending to prod us with how vain and meaningless life under the sun is so that in our hearts, we'll long for the life that exists above the sun. As far as I can tell, this phrase, under the sun, when the preacher uses it, he's speaking about life as we see it and understand it in this world. And so when he calls us to think about life above the sun, he's calling us to think about the life that is unseen, the life that that centers around the God who is creator of all things and who is worthy of all praise. He's talking to us about the life that is still to come, that we can experience now in part, but that we will one day experience fully upon the return of our Lord. And he wants to poke and prod us with the, with the depressing vanity of life under the sun so that we can realize how thirsty we are and so that we can realize that if we're trying to quench our thirst with life under the sun, then we too will die of dehydration. The true living water, it's not found under the sun. It's found in life above the sun as it's governed by God and as all things sit rightly in worship of God. And so just think about the above the sun perspective on these two questions the preacher has asked today. In verse three, he asked us about what gain there is from all of our work under the sun. And friends, he's telling us that if we look to the work of our hands in this life for meaning, for joy, for fullness, well then frankly, we're kidding ourselves. It's Ecclesiastes chapter three that will tell us that the Lord has created us with eternity in our hearts. And what that means is that we're wired not for this life, but for the life to come. We can't find joy and fullness in perfection in this life. There will always be some brokenness and some emptiness to our experience in this life because life under the sun isn't the life that we're created for. We're created for life above the sun. And so nothing in this world can bear the weight of giving us the joy and the fullness and the meaning that we long for in life under the sun. And so you need to hear that today. I need to hear that. Your work, my work, they can't give us meaning. They can't give us fullness. They can't give us joy because, well, they're like vapor. They're meaningless. And no matter how much we accomplish, no matter how much success we have under the sun, none of those things will bear the weight of the joy that we long for, of the meaning and the fullness in life that we long for. That's true for our relationships too. The relationships that we invest so much toil in, those relationships, they're vapor, right? Even if you're father of the year, your relationships with your children are vapor. Even if you're the greatest wife that has ever walked the face of the earth, your relationship with your husband, it's vapor. The relationship that you wish you had, it's vapor too. These relationships, they can't bear the weight of giving us meaning or joy or fullness in life because we're not wired for meaning and joy and fullness under the sun. We're wired for those things only above the sun. Church, I mean, this is true even of the ministry that we do. It's true of the ministry that the Lord has called you to. It's true of the ministry that the Lord has called me to. I mean, I can, I can pastor Life Church for decades as I hope to. 
right? I can bury half of the people watching this live stream right now, and I can baptize or marry the children of the other half, right? I can stand on this stage and preach from this pulpit until someone finally has to pry my cold, dead fingers off of this Bible right here and haul me off of the stage. I can give you decades of my life, and if I look to any of that for meaning, up empty. If I look to any of that for joy or for fullness, I'll come up empty. Because all of life under the sun is vanity. It's vapor. It's mist. Nothing under the sun can bear the weight of giving us what our hearts long for. There is no gain from anything under the sun. But above the sun? And do you remember the rhetorical question that Jesus asked in Mark chapter 8? He said, For what does it profit a man to gain, there's our word again, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what he meant is that if you live for gain under the sun, you actually lose any hope of gain above the sun. And that's what many in life have discovered. That's what the Apostle Paul discovered. He spent his whole life preparing for gain under the sun. He was from the right family. He had the right teachers. He received the right training. He was prepared for a life of great gain under the sun. But then he met Jesus, and he saw just how meaningless everything under the sun truly was. He talks about that in the third chapter of Philippians. He says, and he's just reciting his own personal resume here. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's his resume. That's every under the sun reason why the apostle Paul might have considered his life to be gain, why he might have considered all the toil of his hands to amount to something, to bring him joy and fullness in life. But then he met Jesus. And he said this, he said, but whatever gain, or word again, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. True gain, the only true gain, friends, it does not come from the toil of our hands, does not come from our relationships or any of our work under the sun. It comes from knowing Christ and everything else is mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. Which leads me just to ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Do you know your Savior who saw your sin problem to be so severe that he willingly came to earth embracing the confines of humanity. He lived a perfect life and then died an agonizing, torturous, substitutionary death on the cross in your place so that you could not, so that you would not have to because you could not. Do you recognize that he did all of that to to give you life and that three days later he rose from the grave in victorious power so that you might have new life in him? Do you know Do you know him in the power of his resurrection, in the surety of his sufferings, 
in the depth of his love and the riches of his grace. I mean, do you know Jesus? Knowing him makes everything under the sun seem like the vanity that it truly is. I pray that you know him. I pray that you do. Even the second question that our preacher asks here, the answer to that question, it changes when we think about life above the sun. He's asked, verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. And his point is, under the sun, there is nothing new. But above the sun, there is a God who makes all things new. And he's provided a new and better covenant through the blood of his son, Jesus, so that we relate to him by grace through faith and not by the works of our hands. He's given us new life through the power of his resurrection. That's a promise that one day all of the affliction of this earthly life will pass away and we will be restored to who we were created to be and walk with him in resurrection's bodies if we are his children. He's promised us even here and now a new heart through that new covenant. A heart that beats for him, that rejoices in him, that delights to do his law, and that bears fruit for his glory in this life. He's promised us a new self that we can put on like clothing through the power of his Holy Spirit so that we walk not in our former sinful ways, but in new ways of godliness and holiness for his glory and for the good of all people. He said that if we are in Christ, we are already a new creation. Behold, the old is passing away and the new has come, he says in 1 Corinthians 5. And of course, all of the new work of our God culminates in a new heavens and a new earth. A place where every tear will be wiped from every eye. Where there will be no mourning or sickness or sadness or pain or death. A place where God himself will dwell among us. I just love this. A place where the glory of his presence will shine so brightly that we will not need the sun. And so life under the sun, it will be no more because there will be no sun. So gloriously will our Lord dwell among us. It's new heavens and new earth. It's the only thing that isn't vanity. It's the only thing that will endure. And church, whether you know it or not, it's the thing that you're longing for. As you think about the meaning of this life under the sun, in this anxious and uncertain and heartbreaking age, where grief upon grief confronts us every day, where racism and injustice and centuries of heartache are just pouring off of the streets through our television screens, in an age where no one knows what the future holds. All of these things, they serve to remind us that we're trying to drink from a broken well that holds no water if we think life under the sun can give us meaning. All of these things serve to move us to rest in the one who reigns and rules above the sun. And the one whose glory will one day shine so brightly that he replaces the sun. And I think the best way that I know to encourage you 
to hold fast to hope in life above the sun is simply to close by, by reading the promises from God's word about life above the sun. And so these are the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years even before Jesus came, thousands of years before we have lived, but sure certain words about the new heavens and the new earth that are to come. The Lord said, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Don't you long for that day, church, when no more shall be heard the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. There won't be injustice. And they shall not plant and another eat. There won't be suffering. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain. Or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. So that's a picture of harmony, of unity. A lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain says the Lord. He says it means the church. Maybe hold fast in hope for that day and in faith to Christ and his gospel until that day. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would give us the hope to believe that these things are true, to, to believe that you will one day make all things new. May we recognize that all of our days under the sun pass away like meaningless vanity, only to be eclipsed by that which we really long for, by that which will bring us wholeness and fullness and joy forevermore. Pray that in the name of Jesus today.